Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back, Creeps. I hope you can all hear that delightful thunderstorm going on in the background. Welcome back to another episode of Just F and Ghost Stories. I still am used to looking into the camera. I've also lost count of which one this actually is, but I'm hoping to get another camera actually after Christmas so we can have like two angles. Besides the point, I wrote down a list on my phone um, of things that I need to talk about before we start the episode. Nothing serious, just like, you know, so I don't forget because that's what I always do and it's something that I want to make an effort, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, the reason why you have a Just F and Ghost Stories this week and not a regular weekly creep is because our schedule was thrown off last week. Uh, we went to see July Talk. It was fantastic. I was allowed to take pictures, um, like, with my camp, like, actual pictures and stuff. It was really cool. Um, made a friend there who's a, a real photographer, stuff like that. That was great. Um, and we also put out a video about our little trip. And there's not a whole lot in it, but it's, you know, if you want to see us hanging out, we stayed in a really cool Airstream trailer as well. Um, so it was a really nice little getaway. But you probably didn't even realize that we made a little video because for some reason, I have noticed in the last few weeks, maybe a little bit longer, but... Instagram has been really trying to push us to like pay to promote our things and which I'm not going to do um, anytime in the future anyway, or in the near future, I don't think. But what it means is our stories, so we have around like 2000 followers on Instagram and that's not like the amount of listeners that we would usually get even like we are very, let, let's say boutique but anyway, normally we would get around, you know, three to four hundred people would like view our stories every day. And lately, like when I posted the link to our most recent episode and that video, it was 34 people or something like that. And I'm like, this, something is off here. So whatever's going on with this algorithm, they want us to pay for advertising. I don't know. But the reason why I'm bringing it up is because if this sucks for like you know the smaller podcasts and stuff like that i am hoping to reach out to other podcasts after well i have already been reaching out to other podcasts and hopefully after christmas we'll be able to do like some sort of um collab thing but other than that the only promotion that we have is through instagram and social media so i'm asking you all every individual one of you if you could please share your favorite episode or an episode that you think like your friend would really enjoy. If you like physically copy, well not physically, but if you copy the link and text it to them, share it on WhatsApp, according to Spotify, a lot of people use WhatsApp to share our stuff, which is fine. Um, any way at all possible, we would really appreciate it because Instagram is just trying to 
I don't know, fucking bury us for some reason. Another thing on my list is that we are actually thinking about moving. Again, this was another thing that I shared on our stories the other day. And like, I think two people, three people got to see or actually like engaged with it. But we're pretty much looking for suggestions. Um, you know, we kind of Houston's the only place in the States that I've ever lived. And we'll say actually for that matter. So right now we're currently like hoping to go like northeast somewhere um, as like the flights then would be like direct to Dublin or back to Houston for whatever reason. But yeah, we really have no idea. So we're like Pennsylvania. That looks like it could be cool in certain spots. But, you know, anyway, we're just looking for suggestions. So we did get a few like our friend in New Jersey. I'm really pushing on that one. I'd like to hear more about that from you, actually. Like, the beach sounds like a great place to live. But yeah, so if you have any suggestions or places that you lived once before and now you wish you could go back, let us know. We're all ears. Other than that, on my list, I have... Look at my cup. This is my favorite fucking cup. The handle is gone. Hold on, I gotta hide behind it. That's another favor, actually. If anybody knows where I could get this cup, because I got it like on special in TK Maxx like three years ago, and I haven't seen it since, but it's the perfect size. <sighs> Let me know where to get good cups. And the last thing on our list is to thank all of our patrons. Just thank you for everything. We really, genuinely, sincerely appreciate every single one of you all. We say this every week, but like, you know, there's a lot of little expenses here and there with the podcast, like buying books, you know, for example, like I have two books currently for our series that I'm working on that should hopefully be coming out next week. The H.H. H. Holmes series, I think I had like four books. I had to. Yeah, it was a whole thing. Anyway, that's like most of it. Other than that, it's small things like this, Mike Arms, which I am actually hoping to upgrade in the new year, uh, lights and stuff. Um, all that kind of crap but more so than the money it's actually just the fact that you guys are showing the support it, that means the world to us and yeah we, we really appreciate it so with that being said let's tell some Just F and Ghost stories our first story today is from Michelle has two L's NDE a near death experience a hyper-lucid experience associated with perceived consciousness apart from the body occurring at the time of actual or threatened imminent death. When I was a child, I had two NDEs. I know this is the internet and people can tend to lie, but please believe me when I share these stories. The first time, I was three or four. I was at my grandparents' house on a Sunday morning, and while my family was getting ready for church, I was busy getting into trouble. I found a key on a marble table my grandparents had in their hallway and I had the fun idea to stick it in a socket just below the table. I was a strong-willed, naughty child and often did the exact opposite of what I was told, so of course I had to see what fun I was missing out on. It was the first time I recall ever hearing my internal voice, or whatever you want to call it. When I stuck the key into the socket with my right hand, I began to seize with the charge of electricity going through my body. I specifically remember a voice inside my head saying, This is what dying feels like. I flew back and hit my head in the marble floor. 
My grandparents were Italian. Everything was marble. And then I began my ascent. I remember travelling out through the dining room window and headed up. Not straight up, but forward and up. I did not recognise any of the vague faces that lined the channel of light I was travelling up. But again, as a child, I didn't know anyone who had died at this time, so there were no familiar faces, but a presence of entities nonetheless. Their presence was warm, welcoming, and felt as if they would pass through me, like two different smoke trails intermingling. I was weightless and unafraid. Another way to describe the feeling was as if there was a mist surrounding me. There was some sort of a field I was shifting through that I had never experienced in my human body. The light that most people recall was there. At the highest point I encountered the presence of something known, something authoritative. A voice without words told me I was not ready yet. I had to go back and I was given my mission. For personal reasons, I would like to keep that to myself, but if this piques interest with true believers, I may share. I can say that it was a simple message, one that my heart and mind understood, even for a child, although I did not feel like a child when I was outside of my body. Upon receiving my mission, I was no longer in the presence of the light. I was turned away and began to descend. This is where things changed. I have not researched other people's near-death experiences as to preserve the uniqueness of my own experience, so I cannot speak to whether this next part is common or not, but it has stuck to me viscerally to this day. Immediately, all the warmth and comfort I felt in the light began to fade. Fast. Every weight that had been lifted or lightened as I went up began to surround me on my way back down towards my body. Peace was replaced with fear. I worried and wondered how I was going to find my body. I was a little girl. How could I get back to my grandparents' house in Montreal, a big city that I did not know? I had not even crossed the street by myself at that point. I saw with the consciousness or sight available to me the whole city below. This occurred in the early 80s, and I had never seen an image similar to Google Earth view, but that is exactly what it looked like to me. I zoomed in closer and closer, I was not in control of where I was going, but clearly my spirit knew how and where to find my earthly body. I cannot reiterate enough how much weight I felt returning. It was as if home was being ripped away from me, and all the trappings that even my young body felt had been reapplied with each and every metre I came closer to rejoining myself. Some details are foggy. I remember my older sister kicking me while I was on the ground, thinking I was faking it. It was the first physical sensation I recall feeling when I awoke in my physical body. I went to see my dad in the room he was getting ready in and said, Daddy, Daddy, I saw Jesus. For a three or four year old, that was all I knew, so that's how I explained it. I remember my dad taking both my hands and looking for marks. There were none. Let me answer a few questions for any skeptics out there. My grandparents had an old house with old wiring there was nothing to cause a breaker to trip, so the current went through me until I blasted back and onto the ground. It was the 80s, and there was nowhere to take me after the incident, so I have no medical proof of this, just my memories. Also, because it was the 80s, parenting styles were a little more relaxed. There was no fuss made about the incident, though my older sister did get in trouble for kicking me. Another thing to note is that this must have been a traumatic experience for me as a child. 
and like many experiences that are too big for a young mind to handle, it was stored away deep in my mind until it could surface when I was prepared to handle the repercussions. I was well into my twenties before the memories fully reassembled in my mind. At that time, I went to my dad and asked if he remembered. His memory was jogged to the event I described, and knowing now how big of a moment it was, we are dumbfounded that it swept over so easily in our family history. That was event number one. The second event occurred when I was 11. I was playing with a boy, trying to keep up and show how tough I was. We were getting up to no good, unattended. It was the 80s, remember. Kids came home when the streetlights came on. In our ever-increasing moments of daring activities, trying cigarettes for the first time happened that day as well, we decided we would play a choking game. I choked him first. He tapped out. I refused to be a sissy like him and never tapped out. The situation was nearly exactly the same as the first time. Although I did not consciously remember my first near-death experience at the time I experienced my second one, everything that happened outside my body was the same. It felt doubly familiar. The fact that it had happened years earlier only made the scenario feel more commonplace. Doesn't everybody have this happen to them? The same sensation of going forward and up, being lifted, becoming ever lighter and more free from the white noise and anxiety that permeate our earthly existence greeted me again. I did not recognise a single soul that lined my effervescent channel upward, but their presence was comforting as they greeted me on my journey towards home. Once more, I was in the presence of light, no sandaled giant sitting upon a throne, just light and love, total peace. I was again told my mission and redirected back to my earthly body. The same feeling of weight returning was upon me. The same fear of finding my body, the mental chatter we all experience, grew louder the closer I got. When I awoke, there was only a feeling of cold wet on my face. The boy who had strangled me was weeping over me, his tears had soaked my face. He was angry, thinking it was a terrible prank that I had played but I had gone grey and there was blood that came out of my right ear. He knew I was dead. But then I came back. We did not tell a single soul for fear we would get in trouble for our antics of smoking and running amok in the forest like wild things. We thought for sure that we would catch a whooping for our stupidity, so we swore to never speak of it again. I do not know if I have suffered any remaining damage as a result of these two experiences. Those who know me, might say there's something a little bit off about me, but nothing that became an impediment to me living a normal life. I will say that, whether it's as a result of the NDEs or not, I do have a heightened sense of the unexplained. I have no fear whatsoever of death, quite the opposite. I long for that feeling of freedom and of being home. Currently, I am a nurse and I want to work with those who are dying. Palliative care is the field that I am drawn to, to help people transition with ease and less fear towards what awaits. It has taken a long time to get there, but I believe that part of the reason I was sent back was to fulfil this dream and help others untangle the mysteries of the afterlife. I can only speak to my experience. I am not looking for a debate, nor do I want to have to defend two of the most defining moments of my life. I simply wanted to share for the first time what it was like for me to die. 
twice. Our next story tonight comes from Smoke Clouds 23. I'm not trying to preach or sway anyone. I'm just going to tell the truth. I got shot seven times. It should have been more, but bad aim helped. I died at least three times clinically. What happened during that time was pretty intense. I'm going to try and sum it up in a few paragraphs, but words don't really do it justice. Let's begin. I saw myself from an outside perspective, flying through a dark tunnel. I was a ball of light, though. I was a ball of light, though. Like, energy. I was flying super fast. This is all I could recollect for days. Me, flying through this dark tunnel, but nothing more. I was having flashes of what was soon to become full memory, but I pushed them aside as just the morphine messing with my head. On the third day I was in the hospital, a surgeon came in and asked me if I remembered waking up after they shocked me and pumped me full of adrenaline. I had no recollection at all. He said that I came back, went back down, came back again screaming, No, no, let me go. I still didn't remember. He asked me again, in a different tone, telling me he'd seen it before and was curious. He said that they had to restrain me even though I was shot twice in the chest and had a jaw and shoulder in pieces. I was fighting hard for something. As it started to come back, I denied remembering anything again because I didn't want to sound crazy. I'm not crazy. After the tunnel I was all of a sudden in the most beautiful blue water I'd ever seen. I describe it like a colouring book blue. A shade of blue that only a child might know. On each side was grass that was just as beautifully coloured as the water. There were people lined up on both sides, and though I didn't pay much attention to them, I'll never forget the smiles and the love I felt radiating from every direction, especially right in front of me. At the end of the water was the most beautiful light I'd ever seen, a sun you could stare directly at, so to speak. With all of my heart, I had to get to it. Like a child loves candy, I needed it. I don't know why, but it was my entire life wrapped up into one mission. Get to this beautiful light. It gets blurry here, but I remember being right there in front of it, feeling an ecstasy no person on earth can explain unless you've experienced it. There's not a word in the English language that explains it. Apparently they shocked me. I came up and went back down. That part I kind of have a recollection of. It was then that God spoke to me. It hit me right in the chest, the words did. He said something along the lines of, It's not your time, or I'm not ready. It wasn't words, it was just energy being passed from him to me. So the second time the surgeon asked, it came back, quickly, everything that happened. I remember not wanting to leave. I remember the love, the light, the ecstasy of what home really feels like. The fight I put up. How dare them take me away from there. Next time you leave work, a friend's, a restaurant, and say you're going home, just remember that while home is where the heart is, you're not home yet. You'll all inevitably see, eventually, and it's nothing to be afraid of. When we cry at a funeral, that's us being selfish that we didn't do this or that. 
The person you're crying for is yourself. The person that passed did just that. Passed the test of life and is now full of more love than you can imagine. Be happy for them and pray for the day that you'll see them again. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. The following story is from Scary Third Eye. Rock Island is a state park located at the tip of Door County, Wisconsin, on Lake Michigan. It's a difficult place to get to. To get to the island, you have to take a car ferry from Ellison Bay to Washington Island, drive across Washington Island to Jackson Harbor, then take a pedestrian-only ferry to Rock Island. No vehicles or bikes are allowed there. Even though the island is relatively small and about 975 acres, it has an interesting history. In the early 1600s, it was inhabited by a tribe of Potawatomi Native Americans, as well as a small fishing village of European settlers. The two groups did not trust each other and did have a few bad encounters that almost led to violence. But for the most part, they lived peacefully together on the island. By the 1640s, the Potawatomi had migrated to other parts of Wisconsin. Shortly after they had left the island, some settlers from the fishing village reported seeing a new group of people on the island. They seemed to be more white settlers, but they wore strange clothes and kept to themselves. No one from the fishing village was ever able to talk to one of these new settlers or even find where they were living. It was around this time that strange things started to happen in the village. Several animals, it's not mentioned what they were, maybe pigs or chickens kept by the settlers, were found slaughtered in the village and their blood seems to have been used to mark some of the buildings. On a different night, a building used for preserving meat burned down. The villagers felt that these things must have been done by these new people on the island, and they intended to find them. These strange occurrences seemed to stop soon after the search, and none of the other settlers were ever seen again. In 1836, the Patawatomi Lighthouse was built on the northern part of the island. After construction was finished, the lighthouse was inspected and it was reported back that, quote, the material of which the lighthouse and dwelling are made are of the best quality and that the work is done in a substantive and workmanlike manner. David E. Corbin was appointed the first keeper of the light on December 19, 1837. Only three years later, in 1840, despite the apparent quality of construction of the lighthouse, David Corbin started to complain that the plaster started to fall off the building and some sort of liquid would ooze through the cracks leaving the house constantly damp. Corbin was completely alone most of the time at the lighthouse, and some have said when visiting him that he would stare at a certain wall and sometimes spoke vaguely of the other visitors. In 1845, after eight years of relative solitude at the lighthouse, an inspector visited the lighthouse keeper and determined that while Corbin was fulfilling his duties, he was acting strange. The official report says that the inspector ordered Corbin to take a 25-day leave of absence to, quote, 
find a wife to live with him at the lighthouse. However, some think that the inspector was startled by Corbin's mental state caused by years of solitude and thought it would be best if he spent some time away from the island. In December 1852, Corbin reportedly fell ill and died inside the lighthouse. He was buried in a small cemetery just south of the building. The next lighthouse keeper also reported the surprisingly quick deterioration of the lighthouse. Some friends that had visited the new keeper say that he would talk of seeing strange things in the house at night, but he wouldn't elaborate on what he had seen. In 1858, after only 22 years of service, the original lighthouse was torn down and a new one was built. From that point on, the lighthouse keepers were required to have an assistant keeper or a family with them at the lighthouse. No strange occurrences were further reported in the lighthouse logbook outside of strong storms and occasional shipwrecks. Except on the 20th of January, 1876. The keeper at the time, named Betts, reported that he saw two men attempting to row to the mainland from Washington Island. He wrote of a terrible storm that came up shortly after their departure and they never made it to their destination. Over three months later, on May 3rd, 1876, Betts wrote, The two men who were lost last January have been seen several times, once from Caney Lighthouse and once on Jackson Port. The men were apparently frozen stiff and sitting upright in the boat among a mass of ice. At last account they were still adrift. There is not much hope that they will be found and buried. By 1900, most of the island's inhabitants left for better fishing areas on Lake Michigan. In 1910, a successful business owner and inventor, Chester Thordarson, purchased all of the island except for the land that the lighthouse occupied in the north. He used the island as a private summer retreat from his business in Chicago. Chester is responsible for the unique and mystifying buildings and structures that are still on the island today. On the south end of the island, he built a giant stone hall that has a boathouse on the lower level. A stone water tower was built on the east side of the island, and an imposing wooden gate was constructed on the west end of the island. The Great Hall was used to store Chester's immense book collection. He had over 11,000 books, and it's rumoured that he possessed some very rare books on the occult in his collection. Chester died of heart failure on January 6th, 1945, though some have speculated that he saw something that actually scared him to death. Some of this history is hard to find on the internet, but there are a couple of binders in the Great Hall that has a lot of this documented. Chester's personal papers are housed in the archive section of the State Historical Society of Wisconsin. All of this history I gave is just to provide a little context for experiences I have had directly or indirectly on Rock Island. In August of 2021, I took my first and last trip to Rock Island. After taking two ferry rides, I arrived on the island at about 2pm. I had booked the remote campsite E, which is a backpacking site that is a little over a mile from the dock. I took my time hiking out to the site to enjoy the scenery and took a couple of breaks just due to how heavy my pack was. I was definitely packed more for camping than hiking. I got to my site, set up my tent, got everything situated and started gathering sticks and driftwood from the beach so I could start a fire. On my third trip back from the beach, I heard a single high-pitched squeal noise coming from the forest. It didn't sound close, 
but it was such an unusual sound that I stopped in my tracks and waited for a good 30 seconds to see if it would happen again. When I got back, I began working on getting a fire started. The remote camping sites on Rock Island are pretty well spaced out. Sites C, D and E are grouped together, but there's probably 100 yards between each site. There's no real trail connecting the three sites directly, but enough people have walked along the ridge between the three sites that there's an obvious path. As I was setting some sticks up in my fire ring, something caught my eye and I looked up. Fairly far away, it looked like it might have been at site D or even a little further, was a person running in my direction. My first thought was, well that's odd, because like I said, it's not even a real trail that they were on. Then my mind just went to, there must be something wrong and this person needs help. They got a little closer and it looked like maybe it was a woman in loose grey clothes, maybe in a hoodie. It was still far enough away that I couldn't really make out any details. I quickly stood up from the crouching position I was in and just as I did I heard that high pitched squeal noise again. It was behind me and it was much closer this time. This startled me quite a bit. So I turned around to look behind me. I scanned the trees for a couple of seconds but didn't see or hear anything. I turned back around because I knew that the running person must be getting close. But now they were gone. Again I stood there and scanned the trees but didn't see them anywhere. I was so confused I was kind of frozen for a few seconds. It was all very strange, but I was able to reason it out in my head that it was just a fellow camper from site C or D that was maybe running to the pit toilet that was a couple of hundred yards west of the sites. I tried to forget about it, but it was really just bothering me. I didn't like whatever that squeal noise was, and I just felt strange. With some effort, I decided to let it go and started my fire. I had a quick meal and a couple of adult beverages, then decided to take a little walk. I hadn't seen sites CRD yet, so I thought I would go and check those out and see if I did have some neighbours camping nearby. Site D was empty. I did see the path that led from Site D to the main trail and pit toilet, so that made me feel a little less uneasy about the runner. I figured that it was maybe someone from Site C that took a strange way to get to the main trail by going through Site D. It didn't make a ton of sense because I probably still should have seen them, but it made me feel better. I continued on to Site C and saw there was a tent set up. I really didn't want to bother anyone, but I just thought I would go over with the excuse that I would introduce myself as camping neighbour from Site E and see if anyone looked like they might have been the person running earlier. I came up on the site and there was a couple sitting at the picnic table. Neither of them looked like they would have been the person I saw running, but I introduced myself. They were probably in their mid-thirties, they were very nice and both seemed to be pretty drunk, but quiet drunk. I didn't ask about the runner or the squealing noise because I thought it might be weird. I wished them a good night and walked back to my tent. When I got back I had a cigar and a few more drinks. It got dark and it started as a perfect night. The sky was clear, and I was just staring up and looking at millions of stars. I felt better about everything from earlier, and felt stupid about the whole thing, and decided to get some sleep. It was a long day, so I fell asleep almost immediately. At around 2.30am, I woke up to a huge boom of thunder. It started downpouring. 
The wind picked up and the temperature dropped. A pretty big storm came through and I was starting to worry. The wind was whipping at my tent and the ground was shaking from the thunder and lightning. I did not feel good about being out there in a tent and felt very exposed. The storm lasted for about an hour before it became just a light, steady drizzle. I was just starting to fall back asleep when I heard the squeal noise again. I opened my eyes up wide in the dark and just lay there, silent. There was another, louder squeal noise and it was pretty close. I knew there were no dangerous animals on Rock Island. There were deer and porcupines, but nothing like bear or wolves. But that still didn't make me feel any better. There was just something about that squeal that I did not like. I say squeal because that's the best I can describe it. It sounded to me like a pig squeal. I honestly don't know that much about pig noises, but that's what I thought of when I heard it. An injured, angry pig squeal. I continued to lay in my tent and started to hear footsteps outside. It was still raining, so the sounds were a little buried in the sound of the rain, but it definitely sounded like a somewhat large animal, or human, walking around. I sat up in my tent and took out my knife just to feel better. In my head I just kept saying, You know it's an animal, it's fine, there's nothing in these woods that can hurt you. I listened, as the footsteps started moving away from the tent. I just sat there, being still, holding my knife for maybe ten minutes without hearing anything else. I started thinking to myself, it's fine, it was just an animal, you're being stupid and you need to get some sleep. I was just about to lay back down when there was a very loud squeal and it was right outside my tent. It felt like my heart just stopped and a shiver went down my spine. My heart was beating so hard my entire body was pulsing and I felt it in my ears. It took everything in me, but I forced out a get out of here. Not shouting, but as stern and mean sounding as I could manage in the moment. I didn't hear any more squeals or footsteps that night, but I also didn't sleep. I just sat there in my tent for maybe an hour before I lay down. Eventually the rain stopped and I just kept laying there until the sun came up, all that time reassuring myself that I was being stupid. It was just an animal. It was probably 7am before I decided that I had to get out of my tent to relieve myself. As soon as I stepped outside, I saw the picnic table had been turned over and was upside down. When I saw this, I surprisingly calmly thought, Okay, this is enough. I'm leaving the island today. I checked my surroundings and nothing else seemed to be out of place. I eventually reasoned with myself that the wind had blown the table over during the storm. It still seemed a little strange because the table was pretty heavy and I felt like I would have heard the table flipping over. But that might have made sense. I admit I get easily scared when I'm camping in the woods by myself. Maybe that's natural. After I had some coffee and food and the sun came out, I realised that nothing I heard or saw was really anything that couldn't be explained. Other than not getting a good night's sleep, I was having a pretty good time. The reason I came to the island in the first place was to hike the 7 mile Thord Arsons Loop Trail that has a lot of interesting things to see and I was excited to start the hike. I kept walking on the trail until I came to a nice scenic overlook with a bench where I sat and drank some water. I started to hear some talking on the trail ahead of me but I couldn't see anyone yet. There was a bend in the trail and the trees were thick so I sat on the bench waiting for these people to come around the bend. The voices were coming closer and I could tell that they weren't speaking English, but I couldn't place the language that it might have been. Both voices were very, 
very deep and guttural. Then, back deep in the woods, I hear a quick, loud holler. Immediately, both of the voices I was listening to responded in their own holler. I kind of smiled because it sounded like these two heard whatever it was in the woods and were trying to be funny and mock it by responding. I got off the bench, put my backpack on, and started walking in the direction further down the trail where the voices were coming from. But I never did find these people. The rest of the hike went very well. I did walk down to Campsite C to ask the couple I spoke to the night before about how they did with the storm during the night, but they had packed up and left. I was disappointed because I also really wanted to ask them about the squealing noises during the night. The rest of the evening was pretty uneventful. I built a fire, made some meals, had a cigar and some drinks. As soon as it got dark I was ready for bed since I had so little sleep the night before. I might have been asleep for about three hours when I woke up suddenly and was immediately fully alert. Nothing that I was aware of caused me to wake up, but I felt like something was wrong. I sat up in my tent, and this part is a little hard to explain. A feeling of complete dread washed over me. It was unlike anything I had ever felt before. It felt like there was something in the tent with me, and I could feel that it was angry, seething with anger, rageful even, and I can feel its hatred for me. It felt like something very bad was about to happen, and I couldn't do anything about it. I started to shiver uncontrollably. There was a smell of garbage or rotten meat, and it got stronger and stronger to the point where I wanted to throw up, but couldn't because I was just frozen. I had never felt so exposed and helpless. I stared forward at nothing, just frozen. And the weird thing is, I accepted whatever was about to happen to me. It was like my brain was telling me that whatever is about to happen, even if it's death, will at least be relief. Then I passed out. At least, I have to assume I passed out. That's all I remember until I woke up at about 8 o'clock that morning. When I woke up, I was laying outside in my sleeping bag, on top of it, and my legs were in an unnatural and uncomfortable position. I was on my back, with my left leg straight out, and my right leg bent so that my foot was up against my left knee. My heart started pounding, but I kept thinking to myself, it was a dream. I'm leaving right now. It was a dream. I'm leaving right now. I packed up everything very quickly and started back toward the dock to catch the first boat off the island. Since the first boat from Washington Island doesn't arrive until about 10.30, I had to kill a little time around the Great Hall and dock area. I wanted to get off the island so bad, but I did feel a little better just being out of the woods and I could see other people. I sat down on a bench a little to the east of the dock and lit a cigar just to give me something to do while trying not to think about the night before. I was sitting a few minutes and scanning out over the water when I was startled by someone behind me saying hi. I jumped and was embarrassed when the person came around saying sorry, 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 didn't mean to scare you. I just saw you smoking and came over to ask if you had a lighter. I felt like an idiot and told him it was fine. I just didn't sleep well last night and was kind of zoned out and I handed him my lighter. He thanked me, lit a cigarette, then handed the lighter back to me. We started talking about the usual things he might talk about. And he said he was from the Madison area. We talked about the storms we've been having. He seemed to be a real outdoorsy kind of guy and talked about his plans to move to Washington Island. 
It was a nice normal conversation and kind of took my mind off the night I had just had for a little while. He seemed like a pretty nice guy. Then, naturally, he asked me what side I'd been staying at. I told him I was staying at site E the last two nights, and he said that he usually books that site, but I must have reserved it before him. He said he had had to book D the last two nights. I was surprised by this because no tent or anything was at site D the two times I had walked past the site. I told him this, and he said that he comes to the island a few times a year and you have to book a site, but he actually camps on different areas of the island. I asked him where he camps and he told me that most of the time he camps out in the East Cemetery, but he also likes to camp in the woods south of the lighthouse. He told me that he hikes about halfway down the Fernwood Trail and just heads north into the woods where he finds a place to camp. He said that one time he found the ruins of a small log house in those woods and he's going to try and find it again and camp inside of it. At this point I started to change my opinion about this guy and wanted to change the subject. And then he asked me if I had heard the screeches in the woods. I took a second to reply and knew he was talking about the squealing I had heard. I told him I did hear it and he looked at me as if he was thinking whether he should tell me something, like a secret. With no expression at all on his face, he said matter-of-factly, a demon lives on this island. Under any other circumstances, I would have laughed this off, but not after what I had experienced the night before. He looked at me and must have seen the anxiety and fear I was feeling. He surprised me by letting out a quick laugh and asked me if I saw anything last night. I told him that I hadn't seen anything and he stared at me like he was trying to figure something out. I felt like he could tell that I had experienced something. At this point I was ready for the conversation to be over. Then he told me he had seen something in the cemetery last night. Now his face and mood kind of changed again like he was trying to confide in me. I really didn't want to ask the question, but I knew he wanted me to ask, what did you see in the cemetery? Then I could tell he changed his mind about telling me. He actually looked at me with empathy and told me what he had seen was hard to explain. But if I was afraid of the screeching noises, he didn't think I should go near the cemetery. I didn't say anything right away, but he said four words without any context. Keepers of the flame. I looked at my cigar and the ash was long. I put it out and told him that I was going to wait by the dock for the boat. He nodded and I started to walk away. After a few steps he said, Hey! And I turned around to look at him. He just said, Don't come back here. I turned around and started walking again. I don't know if that was a warning or a friendly suggestion. But I took it to heart. I was definitely not coming back to Rock Island. When I got home I looked up Keepers of the Flame as it pertained to Rock Island. I found three things that he could have been referring to. The name of the Native Americans that lived on the island, the Batawa Tommy, could be translated to Keepers of the Flame. The lighthouse keepers on the island were sometimes referred to as the Keepers of the Flame. Then there was also a 19th century cult that was said to visit the island from time to time that called themselves the Keepers of the Flame. I know that hundreds of people visit Rock Island every year and have a great time camping, hiking the trails and exploring Chester's buildings. My humble suggestion is this, do not go to Rock Island. Alright guys, oh wait, I'm not even talking into the microphone. 
How's that? All right, creeps. Thank you all very much for listening. We'll be back next week for a very cool true crime and paranormal thing. I'm not going to give away the, the whole the whole spiel. I can't even talk. My eyes are literally glazing over. I don't know if you can see. Let me. My eyes. I felt like they were going bloodshot as I was reading that last story. Thank you all very much for listening. Um, there was something else that I had. That, oh, yeah. Synchronicities. I'll talk about it on next week. Okay. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you wouldn't mind rating, reviewing, subscribing, sharing, all those nice things, that's how we get the word out. Um, like I said, apparently Instagram just doesn't want us to be seen anymore for whatever reason. Um, yeah, that's it. Goodbye. Good night. Thank you, everybody, for uh who submitted stories and all that other stories that we haven't that I haven't read out yet I'm saving for titillating tales because I like for Dulce to be here for them alrighty bye bye I'm gonna do a Scooby Doo I remember traveling through the I re- what the fuck was that on the internet <laughs>